Amen, amen, amen. Church, were you there last week? Were you there at the beach baptism? Was it not amazing? Praise God, praise God, praise God. Not only did we baptize 309 people last week, but throughout all of our services last weekend, in a very unconventional way, um, 39 people stood up with the lights on and in front of everybody to declare Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And God is just doing amazing things. Hey, if you got your Bibles, and I hope you do, grab them. And we're going to be in the book of Judges. Once again, we are in, in week two of this series called Again. And so we're going to be primarily in Judges chapter three. And then uh, we're going to hop over to the New Testament to uh, 2 Corinthians. And if you don't know where that is, it's right behind 1 Corinthians. All right, so good luck with that. <clears throat> so uh, we're going to be in the book of Judges. And the reason this is called Again, we're in this series, and we're studying through the book of Judges. And it's called Again because I don't know about you, but um, in my walk with Jesus, there's been a bunch of times in my life where that's kind of been my prayer, like, again. I mean, here I am again. I made the same promises. I got the same regrets. I make the same resolutions. And then I find myself there again. And I prayed, and I was serious. God, if you'll get me out of this one, I promise I will never do this again. And then on about the third time you pray that, within about six months, you think something's wrong here. And so what we talked about is this cycle of, I wish I had a better word for it, okay? But just this cycle of crappy Christianity. This just merry-go-round of remorse and regret and resolution. And so what we see in the book of Judges is disobedience that leads to destruction. And then because of God's incredible, unending mercy and grace, he sends a deliverer. And then they take their eyes off of him and they go around it again. And they go from deliverance to disobedience to destruction to deliverance. Disobedience, destruction, deliverance. And last week we unpacked the way to break that cycle is what Martin Luther said is through daily repentance. That when, when Jesus Christ gave the command to repent, he did not mean that was a one-time event, but that the life of the Christian should be marked by daily repentance. And, and if you weren't here last week, we looked at this curriculum called um, the Gospel-Centered Life. I'd highly encourage you to, to buy it online or whatever to, to get really familiar with it. And the idea is that, is that daily repentance, remember there were five steps but a theologian wrote it, so I couldn't understand it, so I had to kind of interpret it for normal people like me. And so the five steps of daily repentance was to just admit your sin, to adjust God, to expand your view of the cross, to, to dig around in the sin behind the sin, to understand your unconditional election that God picked you no matter what, and that you find strength from the Spirit. And it was an acronym that spelled out Jesus, so we knew it was spiritual and we knew it was from the Lord, right? And that ultimately, it was that when we came to that place of surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we did not then move further away from the cross and further away from the gospel, but two things would grow in our life. One is that, is that our understanding of the holiness of God would grow, and our understanding of our own sinfulness would grow. And the gap between those two things grow, and the only thing that could fill that gap is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that leads us to a greater dependence on Christ's finished work on the cross, not on better efforts from ourselves, which lead us into where we will be right now, which is Judges chapter 3. You remember, a part of what left, led to that cycle of, of, um, of disobedience and destruction in the nation of Israel was this, that God commanded them to go into the land of Canaan, that he had promised them, and to drive out everything, all the idol worshipers, to drive them all out. But instead of driving them out, they said, God, we can't, because it's hard. And they have chariots of iron. And then God comes back in chapter two and says, are you sure you can't or you won't? 
Because I think where you're saying I can't, what really is going on here is that you just, you just won't. And because sin, when you meet Jesus, does not just see itself to the door, especially when you keep a guest room for it, that that sin will one day wake up in the middle of the night and try to kill you. And so what we're, that's where we kind of pick it up here in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. You're like, what? The Lord left them? I thought the reason that the, that the nations that were there was because the Israelites were not obedient to God. But in chapter 3, it's like you see it from a heavenly perspective. And it says, now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only, check this out, in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had known it before. Now, th this will make your head explode if you think about it too much, which I do. This is all I do all day, every day, okay, especially when it's not football season. This is what I think about, all right? So you're like, <clears throat> all right, hold on. I thought according to chapter 2 that the reason that the inhabitants were there is because the people would not drive them out. But in chapter 3, it says the reason that the, the nations are there is because the Lord left them to test the nation of Israel. Do you know what this means? That God is sovereign even over our own sinful behavior to accomplish his good and perfect plan. That'll make your head blow up. It just will. Do you mean to tell me that God uses my sin for his own glory and for his purposes in my life? That's what I'm saying. You're like, well, how could you possibly say that? Well, you got to read the book. Would you think that human trafficking and domestic violence and false imprisonment is the will of God? And you'd be like, well, no, how could that be the will of God? Well, I don't know, but according to Joseph in the Old Testament from about Genesis 35 to 50, guess what happened to that brother? The Bible says that the Lord was with him, and by the time you get to Genesis chapter 50, what has happened to Joseph, this isn't Christmas Joseph, if you're new to church, this is old uh, Technicolor Dreamcoat Joseph, that'll catch some of you up, okay? <laughs> and this Joseph, in Genesis chapter 50, says to his brothers, what you intended for evil against me, God intended not used, intended for good. That God is so sovereign that he can use every pain, every hurt, every bad decision that you've made and has been made against you, that he can use the evil towards you and the evil from you for his own purposes. That even our struggle with sin reminds us that we are great sinners and we serve an even greater savior. That, that our, the things that we struggle with, the things that we promise we'll never do again, but we keep doing, those things that God can use them in our lives to increase our understanding of God's grace upon us. That, that's what he's saying. And you know how we know this ultimately? It's the cross. Could God use the murder of someone innocent for his own good? He actually planned it before the foundations of the earth, that God willed that his son, who would live a perfect life, would go to the cross and be murdered, be murdered on our behalf. And so if God can use the most horrific act in all of history, right? God shows up to earth and we killed him. Is that a sin? You think? It is. In fact, all the sins of all eternity were heaped onto that very moment. And God not only says, I can use it, but it was my plan and my purpose. So Here's what this means for me and you, that God has a plan for our pain. 
that God has a plan for our pain, that he tests us, that he sharpens us. Sometimes he uses pain and strife in our life to strip away all the junk in our life so that we might know that he is more than enough, that he and he alone is more than enough. I mean, there were times, especially when I was younger in my faith, I would think, God, how come you don't work it this way? What if, God, I'm telling you, I could make you more popular if you would go with my plan. How about you just, once we come to you, you just strip away all the bad stuff in our lives, and then everybody watching would really be into you more. Really? Or would they really just be into them more? And they'd be using God to get what they wanted. And maybe... (laughs) Maybe God's point and purpose on this side of heaven in this lifetime before Jesus comes to make all things new is not to take away pain because maybe pain is not our number one problem. Maybe our number one problem is sin and death. And that is what Jesus came to accomplish and overcome. See, John Newton, the guy that wrote Amazing Grace, he writes a letter when he's in his 80s. He writes a letter to a to a friend of his, and here's what he confesses in the letter. He confesses in this letter, he says, at this point in my life, basically what he's saying is, I thought I'd be a much better Christian. I never imagined that I would still be struggling with the same thing in my 80s that I struggled with in my 20s and 30s. So if, if spiritual progression is being tempted by less and less things, I think I have spiritually regressed. And then he says this, but what it has done, and he's talking about the struggles in his life, He says, but what it has done, it has made me more deeply aware of my need for grace. And I suppose that is spiritual growth. That spiritual growth is primarily growth in my knowledge of my need for amazing grace. So why does God allow you to have struggles and temptations and for the pagan armies of Canaan to still inhabit your life? Do you know that God is sovereign even over the struggles in your life? And that's what sets us up for the first judge that we're going to study. The very first judge is a guy named Othniel. It's not, I mean, there's a few verses on him. Everything goes great. He shows up, he wins, and then he dies, and then it starts over. Now, this next one, he's a lot of fun to look at. Verse 12. If you think the Bible's boring, then you've never read Judges. Here we go, okay? It says this, and the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Here's the disobedience part, okay? They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In other words, they did what we do as Americans. The American dream is this. I'm going to do what I want with who I want when I want. And so that's what they did. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon just sounds like a bad guy, doesn't it? Eglon. So if there's like a movie to this, the soundtrack is, you know, Eglon. That's how this is going. Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel... Because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he, that's Eglon, gathered to himself the Amorites and the Amalekites. And he went and he defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. That's Jericho. Which is a total smack in the face. Why? Because you remember during our Joshua series, the first city that the nation of Israel took over was Jericho. And God delivered Jericho into their hands. That's the one that by faith, they just marched around and blew trumpets and the walls fell down. And so this is the one that Eglon and the bad guys take over. Verse 14. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. I mean, this is 18 years of rape and pillage and plunder and abuse and oppression. And essentially, what we see here is exactly what God warned against. That we can serve the God who saves or we can serve the little g-gods that enslave. And the culture that they tried to mimic actually began to rule over them. Verse 15, and then the people of Israel... 
They cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. And here we see the cycle again. Here comes the deliverer. Ehud is his name, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Now, you think that might be just like kind of a random deal here. Anybody here left-handed? If you're here, raise, Bay Meadows, raise your hand if you're left-handed. You're left-handed, raise your left hand. Come on, be proud of this, people, all right? Are you left-handed? We got a few people. All right, that's good. That's good. Historically, you were known as cursed. Did you know that? <laughs> it's just true. The Latin word for left-handed, or the Latin word for left means sinister or evil. I think the French word means like uh, doofus or something like that. Okay, it just is, all right? The people thought you were less than or you were cursed. Um, it's just true. And there are some curses. Like you ever, you know, left-handed people, when they try to write, they look like they're trying to put like their notebook in a headlock. Like, what are you doing? Just sit on the other side of the table. What are you doing? And you can't eat next to them. They're all up in your face about, relax, man. What's this? We're trying to elbow me? See, the UFC is dinner, okay? But <clears throat> uh, if you raise your hand, you're in company with Barack Obama, George Bush Sr., Bill Clinton, and one of our elders, Dan Buckles, okay? So there you go. Also, you're more likely to be a genius if you're left-handed. That's just true, all right? And you know you can see better underwater if you're left-handed. That's true. I don't know why, but if you're ever going to play like hide-and-seek underwater, get a lefty to come with you, all right? So now in Hebrew, this is important. In Hebrew, what's translated here as left-handed, actually what the Hebrew says is that he had a constricted right hand. A constricted right hand. So, while it's funny for us to laugh about left-handedness or whatever, this brother didn't just have a left-dominant hand. He had a really, really weak right hand. The Bible says it's bound up, unable to be used. Which Here's what this means for Ehud his whole life growing up. Is that, is that the people during this time would have believed that he was cursed of God. And it was either something that he did to earn this curse or it was something that his parents or in a previous generation that his family had sinned and God had punished them. We see this in things like John chapter 9 where Jesus and the disciples come up on a blind man at the pool of Siloam and say, Jesus, who, has, who sinned? Is it this man's sin or his parents' sin that this man would be born blind? And Jesus goes, no, that is not how this works. When people are born like that, it is not punitive because of anything that they have done. And think about this, man. I mean, as cruel as we are to people today with disabilities, it's brutal. It's brutal in biblical times. Can you imagine, can you imagine the abuse that Ehud received when he was growing up in school? Can you imagine how much he got picked on? Can you imagine not just picked on physically, but emotionally and even spiritually? I mean, he's always picked last for every team that he's been on. He was made fun of. They probably had jokes about him. They laughed at him, made fun of And yet, and yet when it comes time for Israel to need a hero, who does God pick? God picks the kid that everybody else has been picking on. God picks the kid that every time they split up to play football, they picked him last. God picks the leftovers, the least of these. God picks the one that the world overlooks, and God looks right at him and says, no, that's my man. And so he's not just like randomly left-handed. He really, he's got a weakness here. And so one of the things, the thing I want you to consider is this, is that what if God actually wants to use your greatest weakness for his glory? I mean, that thing that you begged God that he would fix in your life. What if he's affixed it to you because he has a greater plan in your future and you just can't see it yet? 
Because the story's not over. And if the tomb is empty, then anything is possible. And that God could actually use your greatest weakness, your greatest fear, your greatest insecurity, your greatest screw-up, whatever it is, that that could be the very thing that positions you in such a way to be used by God in a, in a mighty, mighty way. And so... Ehud, the left-handed man. It says, the people of Israel sent a tribute. This means they sent money. That's what you would do. That's why nations took over nations. It's just to get more money. And so they sent more money by Ehud to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword of two edges, a cubit in length. That's about 18 inches. A cubit in the Bible is about the length of your forearm because you couldn't carry a tape measure around. So how far is that? It's about a cubit. All right, that's why their building programs weren't to code, but that's fine, all right? So it was a cubit in length, about 18 inches. And he bound it to his right thigh under his clothes. This is the, this is the biblical evidence that, that concealed carry is legit, okay? Because that's what he did. <laughs> and if you're not into concealed carry, you're at the wrong church, okay? Because you're sitting amongst some very well-armed people in here. Right? That's just a fact, is it not? All right, don't give yourself away by clapping too much, all right? But that's just true. <laughs> and so... Now, here's what's important. Because his right arm is bound up, his sword is not on his left side for everybody to see, but it's under his cloak and, and, it, and it's on his right, right side. So nobody would see it or know it or expect it. Verse 17, and he, this is Ehud, and he presented the tribute, the money to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, the king of Eglon was a very fat man. And you're like, what, is this the Bible? This is like a left-handed guy and a fatty, all right? What is going on here? You know, lefty versus hefty, round one. Here it is. That's what the Bible says. I'm sorry. Verse 18. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, and he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And then he, the king, commanded silence, and all the attendants went out from his presence. And maybe he thought he had, like, you know, a box of chocolates or Twinkies, or I'm not sure. He's like, I got something just for you. Verse 20, and Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. Now, in my mind, when I think of this biblical event, this is the image that comes to mind every single time. That's it. All right, Luke Scott, that's what is in my mind. Okay. You with me? All right. So everybody get this. You got the left-handed guy, the guy with the withered right hand. How does he get a private meeting with the king? Well, probably because the king looks at this guy with a withered right hand and is like, this guy is no threat at all. This guy is weak. This guy is nothing. He's not armed. He doesn't even have a strong hand to fight me with. I've got this guy's. Y'all can leave the room. And as Ehud says, hey, I got, I've got something just from God for you. This is a secret just for you. And then the Bible says, and he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh. Again, there's no way the king would be expecting that move because he was too weak. And he thrust the sword into his belly. Verse 22, and the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. What? Yeah, that's what, now imagine, this is not, this is, remember when I told you that the Bible is not a safe book for children? Can you, just read this one to your kids tonight, all right? It's lefty versus hefty, and he, I mean, imagine the noise, it sounded like a cow trying to get his foot out of the mud, right? Just, oh, there it is. Whoa. And why do you leave that in there? Well, who's going to get it? You know what I mean? 
Look, I'm just trying to read the Bible to you people, okay? We're very biblical around here. And then my favorite part of the verse, this should be a memory verse. And the hilt also went into, wait till it goes on the screen. It's going to be awesome. Into, after the blade, the fat closed around the blade. He did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Of Eglon, all right? <laughs> the Bible wants you to know that Eglon pooped his pants. That's what happened in that moment. At this point, I want to tell you a story about Pastor Ryan Stone so bad. <laughs> but I'm not going to. But if you know him, you know him. And at Bay Meadows, you ask him, okay? You ask him. And if he doesn't tell you, he's a liar and the truth is not in him, all right? And so, but for the sake of his beautiful wife, Blair, and his integrity, I'll just, I won't. I'll tell you what. Have y'all seen, seen who the pastors marry around this place? I mean, if you want some evidence for the existence of God, just look at our pastors and then look who they marry, and you got to go, there must be a God, and prayer works, okay? That's just true. And that's true for all of us. We've all outpunted our coverage. But it's especially true if your name starts with Ryan. That's just a fact, all right? So I'm not going to tell you the story, but the dung came out, so he, he, he messed himself. Verse 23, and then Ehud went out onto the porch, and he closed the doors of the roof chamber. This word translated roof chamber could also mean bathroom. That's obviously what it is. They're in and around the bathroom. He kills the guy, uses the bathroom, and then Ehud makes his way out, okay? It's very MacGyver. If you don't know who that is, Google it. You'll see, all right? He's, he was a 20th century prophet. All right, so... <laughs> The doors of the right chamber behind him, and he locked them. Verse 24, and when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is, he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. Right? And I'm sure they're making jokes out there. They'd be like, you hear any movement? No, but I smell one. It's stuff like that. That's what they're saying. Right? Hey, listen, once a youth pastor, always a youth pastor. You know what you were coming to. Here we go. Verse 25. So there they are, right? And they're making jokes and they're laughing. And then it starts getting weird. Verse 25, and they waited till they were embarrassed. That's funny. <laughs> but when he still didn't open the door of the roof chamber, they took the key and they opened it. And there lay the Lord dead on the floor. And he who had escaped while they delayed. And he passed beyond the idols and he escaped to Sarah. And when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And when the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. In other words, he goes, he's like, the Lord has us. And we've taken out his, their leader. They don't have a leader now. Follow me. And the people do. Verse 28, and he said to them, follow after me. For the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And so they went down after him. And they seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites. And they didn't allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time, about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. And God used the Passover. God used the weak. You see, what Ehud, had, what Ehud and everyone else had saw as his greatest curse and weakness, it turned out to be a part of God's master plan of redemption. Isn't that just like our God? I mean, the thing that he was most embarrassed about, the thing that he probably prayed about the most, the thing that, that he thought was actually a curse from God turns out to be this blessing from God on his life. It just took him a while to see it. Isn't that just like our God? And this isn't just one random Old Testament story with some pretty graphic details. 
that this is a biblical theme from the very beginning to the very end. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is the Apostle Paul talking. And when, you, when I think about the Apostle Paul, I don't think weak. I don't think a guy that doesn't have a strong right hand. I think of a man, of like the most faithful guy alive. I think of a guy that just standing there with a big F on his chest for faith with a, with a, with a cape just blowing in the wind, saying things like, to live is Christ, to die is gain. You think about those kind of things. You think about a brother that's in jail with somebody and, and they sing to the point where the walls fall down and then they still don't run away because they ain't scared. And the jailers are like, are you going to run? Nah, we're going to lead you to Jesus first. And we're not going until God says it's our time to go. I think about a guy that gets stoned, and this means throw rocks at for some of you, all right? <laughs> On the outside of a town till he was dead. I think he was dead. The Bible says that, that, that they thought he was dead. And then when he comes to, he gets back up and he goes back into the town to preach the gospel. That doesn't sound like a weak man to me. But the thing about the Apostle Paul, if you read the scriptures and you take them seriously, Paul is incredibly vulnerable that, he, that he's a man like we are. And again, on the, on the one hand, he's not. On the one hand, his handkerchiefs were healing people. You, you remember that in the book of Acts? His handkerchief, like he's at a cookout and he's like, he blows his nose and people grab it and they go lay it on Nana and then it's like, I'm alive. All right, that's what's happening to Paul. We do healing series here, healing services, and I pray my face off. I anoint with oil, I quote the scriptures, and I'm like, be healed in the name of Jesus. And people are like, thank you, Pastor. And they walk off, okay? But Paul, Paul the, the Bible says that his shadow was healing people. But when you read what Paul says about Paul, he says he's in that again cycle too sometimes. Ever read Romans chapter 7? You want to feel better about your walk with Jesus and understand how important God's grace is in your life? Read Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 is like a tongue twister. Paul says, the things I don't want to do, I do. And the things that I want to do, I don't do. I want to do good and evil is right there with me. And then, and then he ends it with thanks be to God. And that's what Romans 8.1 is addressing is all of Romans 7. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And here in, in 2 Corinthians 12, this is a confession of Paul's weakness. He starts it out this way. He says, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man. This is, this is crazy. Some of you come to me with stories like this, okay, what Paul is about to say. And, and you're like, God told me this or I saw this vision and in my natural, in the flesh, in my mind, I love you. I really love you, and I appreciate your closeness with God. But in my mind, I go, you're crazy, all right? <laughs> but here's why it's okay, because there's crazy people in the Bible, too. They were called apostles and prophets, all right? So that's why I always make room for it as I'm receiving your testimony. It says this, Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Like, what does that even mean? Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. Okay, that's not an explanation, but keep going. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Paul's like, I don't even have a good explanation for the supernatural things that I have experienced. And on behalf of this man, I will boast. But not on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool for I would be speaking the truth. In other words, what Paul is saying is, in me and through me and around me, God has been doing some pretty amazing stuff. 
in this, we, we, we're with Paul on this one, 11.22. Not, not, not for us and not by us. But in us and through us and to us, God has been doing the miraculous. And I'm going to tell you this. Getting caught up into the third heaven in such a way where visions cannot be explained by mere mortal words, that's neat. But watching 309 people declare Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior that will change their eternal trajectory forever because they, they surrendered their life to the Lordship of Christ, that is something that we can't explain either. Yeah. Amen? It's just true. And so what Paul is saying here is, God's been doing a lot around me, but I can't brag around about that stuff. And here's why. He says, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Verse 7, so... The reason the so is there is Paul saying, because I have a propensity to kind of make it about me and just to protect me from me, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. And it's implied here by God that God gave the apostle Paul a problem, a struggle, some kind of physical condition or ailment. And listen, it, it's, it's by God's grace that he didn't tell us what it is. Because if he told us what it is, every legalist at church, that's all they would focus on, is the thing instead of the reason behind the thing. Now, this is why seminaries get started, so people can sit around for 100 years and just guess, all right? And so, you know, I've read it was poor eyesight. Maybe it was poor eyesight. If that's the case, then... God is slowly injecting a thorn in my face right now, all right? Just month by month, it gets a little bit worse. But uh, some people say maybe it was epilepsy and he passed out and stuff. I don't know. And I'm glad they didn't mention it because we would miss the point. But Paul says, for my own good, a thorn was given me in the flesh, comma, a messenger of Satan to harass me. All right, now who has a theology in it that has a category where God's doling out demons to people? Oh, I got something for you. Oh, what's that, Savior? Here's a demon. <laughs> but that's what it says. A messenger of Satan to harass me. So God's handing out demons to people? Listen, nothing is out of his control. Nothing is out of his control. Yes, we have a spiritual enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy us, but he is on a chain that is controlled by God, and he can't jump or bark or sit or fetch without, without God allowing him to do so. He does not have free reign. That God is sovereign and omnipotent and control of everything in your life, and he has never been surprised once, not ever once. There's nothing. This also means there's nothing in your life that could disqualify you from God. And he says, here's why he gave it to me. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. In other words, Paul would say it's by God's grace that I had a lesser struggle to prevent a greater struggle. Did you ever think about that? Maybe the reason God has not delivered you from what you're struggling with is so that you would not fall into what C.S. Lewis says was the mother of all sins, which is pride. And so it was by God's grace that he gives him this thorn in the flesh. Verse eight, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Now, I don't think this just means three individual prayers. Dear God, please remove the thorn. And then that weak little, but thy will be done. I don't think that what, that's what Paul's doing here. I think there are three seasons in Paul's life where he's begging God and he's pleading with God. 
And he's imploring God. And he's quoting Bible verses back to the one that wrote them. And he's like, God, will you please? Will you please? Will you please? Here's a part of the reason I think Paul puts this in here is to let you and I know that that you and I have permission to, to plead to God and to beg him to change our circumstances. That we do. He's a good dad and he wants to hear from his kids. Don't you hate it when your kids lie to you? I don't mean like lie to get away from something, but when they're not honest with you because they're like trying to protect you. When you look at your kid and you know something's wrong, you're like, what's wrong? They're like, nothing, I'm fine. Wouldn't you rather them just open up and say, here's what's wrong. I'm hurt. You made me mad. I'm scared. Whatever it is, but they're trying to like be tough and you don't want them to be tough. You want them to be your children, right? Well, if, if we as earthly parents can feel that way about our children, how much more does our perfectly heavenly father want to just hear from your heart? Do you ever think about that's what prayer is, not getting what you want, but giving God who you are? And so he says, plead with me, plead with me, bring it, bring it again. And so Paul says three, three different seasons, three times he pleads with God, but here's God's answer. You see, God always answers your prayer, you know that? Sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no, sometimes it's not now. And he says, this is God's answer, but my grace, my grace is sufficient for you. God, Paul says, please God, please remove this thorn from my flesh. And the answer is, my grace is sufficient for you. The way we say this around here is, is this, is that we don't follow Jesus because he makes our life better. We follow Jesus because he's better than life. We don't follow God because, because he's like the eternal uh, slot machine and we can get cash and prizes. We follow after him because he is the prize. He is the prize. So he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, this is the opposite of everything you've ever heard, especially if you grew up in America. You've never heard of this before in your life. This was not taught in school. This was not taught on any sports team. There's nobody that's going to teach this. Except it is a truth from the gospel that his power is made perfect in weakness. You see, we perceive weakness as something that we missed out on. Some kind of unmet potential that we did not do something right. And God is saying, actually, my power is made perfect in weakness. This is why, by the way, this is the major problem with this prosperity gospel that that is proliferating our country and really all over the world. The problem is this. It's not that God doesn't want to prosper you. He does. He just has a different definition of prosperity. You see, the problem with the prosperity gospel, by the way, the gospel needs no adjective. The gospel can stand fine just by itself. And when we think that we follow after God so we can get stuff, then guess what? We become God and he becomes subservient to us and he owes us. And if you're not careful, we can go down this road in a second and say, God, where are you? What are you doing? I've been following after you. I've been tithing. I've been, I didn't go see 50 Shades Gray. I'm not looking at stuff online. I mean, I'm doing so good, God. And now, now don't you owe me? I mean, I bought that book. I prayed that tickle me Jabez prayer, whatever it was. I thought that would work. I got, I got, I'm rubbing beads. I'm going to four different disciple groups. And the problem with it is that's not how it works. You see, the prize is not the things of this earth. The prize is Jesus himself. And so God's answer to Paul is, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And then 
how this lands on Paul is this. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. To which if we're sitting across Starbucks having coffee with Paul, we go, no, Paul, you don't brag about your weakness. You hide your weakness. And you cover up your weaknesses. And we blame our weaknesses on our circumstances. Or we blame our weaknesses because we weren't breastfed as children. Or whatever reason it is. But we don't, we don't boast in our weakness. You know, you don't have people come to you and be like, you know what, you're not that smart. Be like, actually, it's much worse than you think, <laughs> okay? I couldn't get into anywhere. <laughs> it was crazy, <laughs> right? People say, ah, you don't make very good decisions. Oh, my, I barely made it here now. I mean, that's the kind of man Paul is. He's bragging in it. Here's why. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, there's a big old difference between I got this and I surrender. I got this. You know what that call, that's called in church? That's called religion. That is man's pursuit of his own self-righteousness. I got this. I can clean me up. The first people that ever did it, Adam and Eve. They said, oh, we've sinned? No, God, I got this. We will make a covering. How silly must they look to an almighty God with fig leaves on running around the garden. Surrender is, God, I don't got this. Fundamentally, that's how you boast in your weakness. That, that I have been the boss of me and it ain't working out right. Verse 10, it says, and for the sake of Christ then, I am content. Underline that in your Bible. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. And look what he's content with. I am content with weakness and insults and hardship and persecution and calamities. Can you imagine that kind of freedom? <laughs> I mean, let's just be honest. A lot of us in the room, man, we kind of got it made, right? I mean, compared to what Paul's going through, we, you know... Maybe we got some weaknesses, insults, I don't know, maybe, probably on Facebook, that don't matter. Hardships, I know there's a few hardships in here, I know, but compared to this brother, shipwreck, beaten, stoned, imprisoned multiple times, one time fresh off of a shipwreck, I mean, the brother has to talk him into not killing him and at least letting him try to swim for the shore. He swims for the shore with the chain, he still smells like jail. Gets to the shore, makes a fire, and he's like, ooh, finally. And a snake bites the brother on the hand, the Bible says, and wouldn't let go. Can you imagine that? And he's like, really, God? Are you being serious right now? He is flopping the snake around it won't let go. And in that, with a snake on him, he goes, yeah, I'm content. <laughs> if you're content in your weakness, then what else can the world throw at you? I mean, if you're content in brokenness, if you're, con if you're content with, with a bunch of people not liking you, if you're content with being passed over at work, if you're content with little, then what can the world take from you? It's almost like the Apostle Paul, I've used this illustration before, but this, it's just the way I think about it. It's almost like every single one of us have these handles that are attached to us, if you could imagine that. In this world, the enemy is like the walking dead. It's just coming at us all the time, right? And we've got these handles, and it's money, or it's sex, or it's drugs and rock and roll, or it's what people think about you, or it's the clothes you wear, or it's your status, or whatever. Sometimes it's good things, all right? It's what people think about you at church, whatever it is. But it's like the Apostle Paul was so surrendered to Christ and boasting in the weakness of who he is because he depended on the finished works of Jesus. It's like all the handles fell off. 
And when the enemy would reach out and try to grab onto something, there was nothing to grab onto. And so he says, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness and insults and hardships, persecution, calamities. And here it is. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Here's the point. Here's the point. There is no testimony without a test. And if dependence on God is the ultimate point, then maybe weakness is our greatest asset. That first line, there is no testimony without a test. You know what, that first, that sounds cute, right? Like, I usually know all the little cute Christian sayings. I've been doing this professionally for too long, so I know all the little goofy T-shirt, crochet, coffee cup kind of things that people say that I typically hate. This one I heard for the very first time at our baptism. I met a few people at our baptism, or talked to a few people at our baptism on the beach, and um, I don't know if you guys realize how much you pastor me all the time. And so I'm talking to this guy on the beach, and, um, <clears throat> and, and he's a hunter. It's what he does professionally. He like, traps animals, so he, and so we just show pictures of dead things. Look at that. I kill that. I kill that. It's very spiritual. The Bible says, get up, kill, eat. That's what it says in the book of Acts. So that's what we do because we're trying to be, like, a good disciple. And so we're sharing hunting stories, and we're talking about, hey, are you getting ready for deer season? Blah, 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 blah. I know you're very interested. And then um, I noticed that he was looking kind of thin, but that's not a thing that you say to another man. Because he kind of started out thin. You know, I don't, how do you say that? So I didn't. And then I just go, so how, how you been, man? And he goes, uh, actually, man, I've really been struggling. I, I've had Lyme's disease. I uh, lost 30 pounds. And he started out thin. And I was like, oh, man. And he goes, yeah, yeah, it's been a real struggle. And there's a whole, you know, um, I mean, it's not fatal or anything, but, it's, but, the, te- but the, the procedures you have to go through, he said, it's been really, really rough. And then he said this word. He looks at me and he says, but there is no testimony without a test. That's what he said. And I look at his wife, and he, he's another guy that outpunted his coverage, something fierce. I'm telling you, some of you fellows, you got to pray harder or something, all right? I'm telling you. And the God, God is good, all right? And so, and so she's there, and she's all about to cry. And I'm like, you guys doing okay? And he looks at me, and he goes, yeah, there's no testimony without a test. I just pray that I suffer well. And I will tell you this, I have never been closer to the Lord in my entire life. And I thought, man, this is it. This is when I am weak, then I'm strong. I talked to this other lady, right? Right after I finished talking to him, this lady comes up to me. I met her before. She's part of our family. I, I'm just, I love it. I love, that's one of my favorite things about our beach baptism, right? Just, it's, it's like dinner on the grounds. Remember that from some of you old school church people? And so that's what it's like, right? We're all out there and I meet this lady and, and, you know, people say the kindest things to me. And she just says, I just thank God that he led me to this church. I'm like, well, how did you get here? And she says, well, I came from another church. I go, all right, well, what's going on? And she said, well, I served there for a long, long time, and they teach the Bible every single week. And one of the things she says, she said, I tell you, one of the things I love about 1122 is it's, it's breaking me of my legalism because I'm so legalistic. And uh, she's a recovering Baptist, so when you say that, you just know, yeah, that's right, I know. <laughs> and I was like, well, how'd you get here? She said, well, you know, I got a pro- an adult son who's a prodigal son. And he's addicted to stuff, and he, you know, sometimes he does good, sometimes he doesn't do so, do so good. And he, she tells me his name, and I recognize it from the prayer card. So she's one of those faithful mamas. Because I'm telling you, the church, I know it's built on the proclamation of the gospel, but I'm telling you, the church is also built on the prayers of some caring mamas. It's just true. And so she writes the same one every week, and we pray, and we pray, and we pray. And, and, and so she says, well, you know, at my old church, I was there, and I served. I was serving for years and years and years, and I was, I was teaching like a Sunday school class and stuff. And then they came to me, and they said, you know what? We, we kind of need to move you out of this because um, we don't think you're a very good example because of what's going on with your son. And I was like, hey, listen, at the Church of 1122, we're a movement for all people. 
And what she was saying is this, but now I can see how God has used one of the most painful things in my life to lead me to a place where I can be saturated in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? And I want to say very, very clearly that the church of 1122, that this place and any gospel-centered place, if you know that you're weak and broken, then this is the place for you. As far as churches go around Jacksonville, look around. It is the island of misfit toys, all right? And if you think, it, if you, think you have it all together, you're not going to fit in well here at all. You're going to be really, really uncomfortable. And what this lady that I, that I spent some time with, and all that, I mean, it got me all teared up. It really did. Because I just think, oh, that can't be what that church meant. That cannot be what they meant. But that's what they said to her. And so I just said, listen, we love you. We'll always love you. And how amazing is our God that he would use legalism to break you of your legalism. That, That he would use your son's rebellion against him to break you of your religion against him. So that you could understand that what you needed from him was his grace. And so... If, if dependence on God is the ultimate point, then maybe our weaknesses are actually our greatest asset. It's just true. Here's what C.S. Lewis says, that, that pain insists upon being attended to. That God whispers to us in our pleasures and he speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I heard about one time at a pastor's conference, there's this, this old dead Baptist guy named Adrian Rogers. And there's this pastor's conference, and there's like a bazillion people there. And they're probably all Baptists. And I'm a recovering Baptist, just in case you don't know. You know, you can't make fun of them unless you are one and I are one. So that's it, all right? <laughs> and he says to this, you know, thousand pastors, probably in three-piece suits and very large King James Bibles with multiple ribbons. You know what I'm saying? Like ready to roll, brothers, with very nice parts, those that still had hair. Right, right. Okay, we all there? Yeah. Everybody just had a flashback, didn't they? Like, oh my God, how do you know? I know. And he says to to this group of pastors, right? It's a pastor's conference. He says, if anybody's a valedictorian here, would you please stand? And some of the people stood up, you know, feeling good about themselves. Anybody receive an academic scholarship to college? And more people stood up. Anybody on the homecoming court or graduate with honors or have an athletic scholarship and just continue to name off superlatives. And by the time he got finished, there's about... A third of the room is standing. And he says, I got good news and I got bad news. The good news is, to those of you standing, that God can use you too. (laughs) The bad news is you are not his first choice. You see, do you know that the disciples of Jesus were the leftovers in the JV? If you understood a little bit about first century Hebrew school, what you would understand is that everybody went to the first round, they memorized the Torah, the whole thing, and then the best of the best of the best that tested like into gifted, they would go to the second round. And those that graduated from the second round, if they were the best of the best of the best, they could like interview with a rabbi, and if they passed that test, the rabbi would say, you should take on my yoke, my teaching, only if you're the best. But if they did not pass that second round, the rabbis would say to them, go and learn the trade of your father. When Jesus found his first set of disciples, who were they fishing with? Their dad. Because they failed out of rabbi school. They weren't good enough. And for years, you know, everybody freaks out about how he could walk up to two and say, drop your nets and follow me. And they're like, what was it? Was it in his eyes? What was it? 
Man, to be a rabbi was like the highest honor in the first century. There would be no higher honor. It would be like if Gus Bradley came to your Pop Warner, you know, dads, all you that are freaking out and trying to live vicariously through your kids, I am too, all right? It would be like if he showed up at your kid's practice and said, I want you to be a Jaguar today. And he looked at you and said, can I leave, dad? You'd be like, go, son, go, right? Because the next day when the people showed up at the fishing boat and said, hey, where are your boys, Mrs. Zebedee? He'd be like, <laughs> my boys got picked up by a rabbi. That would be like saying first round draft picks. That's it. But when Jesus went to look for the men that he was going to change the world with, did he go to the best of the best? Did he go to the Harvards and to the Yales and to the Georgias? No. You know what he did? He went to the leftovers. He went to the left out. You know what that means for you and me? Man, if the disciples were rejects that Jesus picked, then there's hope for me and you. And if God could use the weakness of a man with a drawn-up right hand, and he could use him to deliver his people, then there's hope for just ordinary, uneducated men, men and women like you and I who've been with Jesus. Um, if you haven't read Corey Tim Boone's book, The Hiding Place, you should. One of the most impactful things about this, it's the story of her and her sister Betsy, and they were arrested uh, during the World War for hiding Jews, and they, they put them into a concentration camp. And at one point in the book, pretty much it's, it's about their faith in the roughest places in the world. And at one point, they, they moved them from one prison to, to a worse prison. And she's recording how they're handling that. And, and the, 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 the temperature was worse. The smell was worse. It, it, it was more crowded. One of the things she said that just shocked me like crazy is they would strip down, they would strip down the prisoners and the women and march them in front of the male guards. And she says this, surely there is no more wretched sight than the human body unloved and uncared for. So that's what they're going through. And then they, they, they put them in a new cell with a bunch of women, her and her sister, and, and if it can't be bad enough, when they lay down and try to go to sleep, immediately the fleas just begin to bite them and crawl all over them. And it's just infested with fleas. And she gets to the point where she just says, I, can't, I just can't take it anymore. What do we do? And here's what her sister said. Her sister says, I know exactly what to do. Betsy is her name. She said, I read it in the Bible this morning. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17 and 18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. So, Corey, let's give, let's give thanks. Let's give thanks to, for the guards. Let's give thanks for the fact that we are in here with all these women. We'll be able to talk to them about Jesus from all over the world. And let's give thanks for these beds that we are in. And let's give thanks for the fleas. And Corey says, all right, you've taken it too far. How are we going to give thanks for the fleas? And then they begin this Bible study. And it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows. And it gets to the point where basically everybody in their cell block, number 28, they were having full-on worship experiences, which were illegal in a Nazi prison. And they always wondered, why do we have so much freedom in here? And the reason they find out later is that the guards would not go in that cell block. And there was one reason why. Fleas. And the thing that they wanted God to most take away was actually his protection that led that entire cell block to Christ. So I want to ask you a question. And I want the, the real preacher of 1122 to step in. And I want, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, what do you perceive as your greatest weakness? What do you perceive as your greatest pain? 
What do you perceive is that thing that you wish you could change? For some of you, it's sin from the past, it's a divorce, it's fear, it's addiction, it's that I'm not strong enough, I'm not smart enough, I don't have enough money, whatever it is. Just, just don't have to say it out loud. But in here, what is that thing that you perceive as your biggest weakness? Now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, imagine, imagine how God could use that in your life for his glory and for the purposes that he has for you. Because if the tomb is empty, then anything is possible. And how in the world can we believe that, it, that in weakness that he is strong? It's because when God sent a savior, he did not just send someone in power and in might and in authority to just establish an earthly kingdom. But hanging on the cross, the ultimate example of cosmic weakness is that God allowed himself to die so that you and I may live. Would you please pray with me? Holy Spirit, I pray in this very moment right now in the heart and the soul of every man, every woman, every student, God, every believer within the sound of my voice, God. Holy Spirit, would you reveal what we have perceived as our greatest weakness, our greatest tragedy, our greatest regret, our greatest sin, that thing that we've begged that you would take away from us, and yet, and yet your answer back to us has been that your grace is sufficient. And God, by the power of your divine imagination, Lord, would you drop into our soul and into our minds how you might be able to use that for your glory in ways that we couldn't even think or imagine, God. Because God, it's just like you. It's just like you. To, to pick the, the less than and the weak to demonstrate your strength. God, we believe that because that's what you did in Jesus. And we thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, would you please stand as we respond? We respond around here by joining our voices together and singing to the one that is worth it. That's what worship is. And we, we respond financially with our tithes and our offerings. We bring our first and our best to God because he loved us first by giving us his best. And we respond by praying. And this might be one that you need to grab somebody with you because what you have perceived as a weakness in your life, God actually wants to use to demonstrate his strength. So we would love for you to come down and pray. Let us respond.